0: Listening to the Queen City Church sermon of the week. Enjoy this exciting message by Randall Worley. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for leaving the light on and not changing the locks. I I really did enjoy the worship, but I have to say that lead guitar player was exceptional. <laughs> exceptional. It really was. That's our youngest in whom we are very well pleased. And uh, he has a birthday coming up, and it's making us feel older, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'll mention very quickly uh, a couple of my books that I've brought that are back there somewhere. Um, I don't think they threw them in a closet. Did you, Chris? Okay. Uh, The first one is Brushstrokes of Grace, Grace in a Graceless World. I won't elaborate on it um, other than just to say that I examined some of the encounters that Jesus had with various individuals and attempt to show you that Jesus really didn't come to try to define grace, but to demonstrate it to people. Uh, the other one is called wandering and wondering, the process that leads to purpose. That one has to do with understanding that our purpose is always influenced uh, by usually a protracted process, if you know what I mean. Um, these books uh, are normally, I think, on Amazon about fifteen ninety nine, and we're selling today for twenty nine ninety nine. Now you can have them for eight dollars a piece. Uh, my third book, uh, called Harbinger of Hope. And uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's Robin's book, um, which he uh, gave me the privilege of endorsing. Um, before I get started, uh, and I think this is apropos for what I want to talk to you about, uh, there was a man who was rather slow, that was essentially not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, it was a part of a large family, and one of the family members decided that they were going to give him a puzzle. To occupy his time, and so they gave him a puzzle that had only 500 pieces to it, and a couple of days later, he managed to finish it. Well, after finishing it, he was so proud of himself, he told the family member that gave him the puzzle, said, hey, listen, I finished, and it only took a couple of days, 500 pieces, I got it all together. Well, the family member said, that's great. He said, yeah, I think it's exceptional. He said, because on the box, it said two to three years. (laughs) So I'm particularly proud of myself that I got it together in two days. I want to talk to you about something that initially may sound like uh, it's somewhat of a conundrum. And that is that we all have the tendency to overpromise and under-deliver. I think that, at least in my experience, that people have labored under this misconception, especially in conventional Christianity, that our relationship with God is based on the many promises that we've made to Him, rather than on the singular promise that He's made to us, and that is that He will never leave or forsake us. Now, so far, your response is totally underwhelming, so I'll push on. Um, I, I, I think that's really important to understand, because in my experience, in 41 years of doing this, I've discovered that people seldom give up on God. They give up on themselves. Maybe you found that to be true. And I'm coming to understand this more and more as I get older, that I don't think that our problems are always saying to us, solve me as much as our problems are saying to us, mature and move and outgrow beyond me. I I think this might come as a surprise to some of you, that I believe that in many ways we grow more spiritually by getting it wrong than getting it right. Now that flies in the face of legalistic thinking people. But... Maybe you should consider this, that some people never really learn anything because they tend to understand, it seems, everything way too soon. Thank you, Andy. You got that. I think that we've made a serious mistake as to what the community of faith is supposed to look like. Um, Maybe it comes as a relief for others you may consider this borderline blasphemous for me to suggest to you that the Bible is a very messy book. You really can't find a perfect family. The dysfunction in the scripture is pervasive. It runs from the beginning to the end. That should make you feel better about whatever your situation is. See, I think that the church as well has become so messy as well because it doesn't understand that the true essence of the church is the gathered weakness of men around the gathered power of God. Um, You know, for years, he mentioned, uh, Robin mentioned that I was a pastor for 27 years. And for years, I thought it was my responsibility to police the behavior of people. Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. Uh, I... I apologize for those of you that I see. I see a few faces that endured those years um, in my congregation. And, uh, you know, I was woefully mistaken. I essentially was trying to childproof the house. Not understanding that this is not the way it looks at all on the pages of Scripture. Um. Just take a deep breath and realize the reality is obsessing over, constantly obsessing over our mistakes really takes far more energy than acknowledging them, owning them, and letting go of them. We all have a tendency, don't we, Uh, when it comes to our mistakes because they are really, really hard to digest. Uh, We have the tendency to double down and to seek for some kind of confirmation bias to prove that we are right. But I don't know of anybody that has ever choked to death while swallowing their pride. (laughs) Humility really is one of those virtues that once you realize you have it, you lose it, don't you? Now, my text is in John 21, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, I think they have it. Yeah, there it is. I'll read through it quickly because I understand that to some extent I'm on a rather short leash here. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciples, Jesus, then the disciple, Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped himself for work. He jumped into the water and he headed into the shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the load, the loaded net, to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking on a charcoal file, fire, and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore, and there were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come, he said, and have some breakfast. And Jesus said, see, this is a long reading, isn't it? So so for those of you that are behind on your Bible reading, you're getting all caught up right now. (laughs) Jesus said, none of the disciples, uh, now he said, come to breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them bread and fish. This was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus answered or asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he replied. You know I love you. Uh, and this exchange here uh, has a lot of tension. In it. If you've never read it before, uh, it's, it's rather awkward as well. Uh, which I've come to understand that, it, at least for me, that God engages me more in awkward situations than in those that I feel that I have control over. That's just for me, okay? Because I have this propensity to want to control my environment. But I should read on lest I get in any further trouble uh, with you on that. But it has to be unsettling, I think you would Agree, when somebody repeatedly asks, do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus continues to do this. Yes, Lord. He said, you know, I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter said, you know, I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John. Do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question the third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Now, I told you I wanted to talk to you about over-promising and under-delivering, which is essentially what performance-based Christianity and the culture at large has advanced in our thinking concerning our relationship with God. We all know people that have the tendency to overpromise and underdeliver. People with very good intentions that gush with grandiose commitments of their intentions and then they fall woefully short. Uh may, might I pause here and tell you as I'm saying this that I've come to learn that I learn best or I teach best what I need to learn the most. So if that's a relief to you, I want you to understand I'm not just talking to you, but I'm wanting to have somewhat of a conversation with you. I remember as a young believer sitting in meetings like this, and I would hear someone, for example, that had given their lives sacrificially um, to go to the mission field. And I would sit there just paralyzed with a sense of insecurity and unworthiness, thinking, gosh, I'm i not even sure I've ever known Jesus when I hear this. You, You know what I'm talking about? When I hear these riveting testimonies about how they left everything to serve God. And then one day I got some relief. I was sitting listening to a missionary that we had supported for years in Haiti. And how that he and his wife had sold everything. He was one of the kinds of missionaries like years ago that they packed their belongings in their coffins because they were not coming back. And I'm sitting there just, you know, in all this self-loathing thinking to myself, I'm not even worthy to stand in front of anyone and talk about Jesus when I compare myself to this man. And in that instance, it wasn't the first time I'd had this experience. In that instant, I didn't hear. Now, those of you that have heard the audible voice of God, I'm envious. I've never heard his audible voice. But I do know when he speaks to me, and he said very clearly, to me, he said, you're impressed with the wrong thing. He said, you're impressed with George Detellus. That was his name. You're impressed with George. You should be impressed with the grace that I've granted him to keep his commitment. That was a game changer for me. I hope it it will in some ways be helpful to you. I I mean, again, I remember, and I'm sure many of you do as young believers, feeling waves of conviction when I would hear of the indomitable faith and sacrifices of these missionaries. And this revelation changed everything for me. Now, before we get back to the text, I think it's important that we consider the backstory of Peter's life, of the twelve men that Jesus chose uh, as a part of his entourage or his disciples. Peter was given to overpromising, wasn't he? Quite consistently, he was impulsive and unpredictable. If he wasn't, um, you know, making commitments that he couldn't uh, keep. Uh, he was taking huge risks, wasn't he? I think probably he missed a good chance at being diagnosed as being bipolar. He talked a good game, but he didn't play one. With the exception to Judas, no other disciple failed more miserably than Peter. He had the tendency to be hot-headed and impetuous and cowardly. He had a foot-shaped mouth that was always speaking, even when he was not being spoken to. To me, bravado had to be his middle name, always blurting things out. He could be crude and rude one moment and then revelatory the next. He is a bundle of conundrums. He's a walking, talking paradox, isn't it? That's Peter. The name that was given to him at birth was Simon, and I don't have time to explore all the implications of this, but why do you think that he is given this name, Simon? Well, his father was a fisherman. He grew up around the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he is given this name, Simon, because it means shifting sand. Uh, I think that's indicative of what we see in the biblical narrative of what his character was like. You never knew what you were going to get from one day to the next with Simon. He was a shifty character. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm throwing this great apostle under the bus, so to speak, because he did do things that far eclipse his failures, his many, many failures, But I think maybe the reason why we have so much of the biblical narrative that is devoted to Peter and what he was really like is to really be an encouragement to us. That's one of the things I've always appreciated about the raw reality, the unedited scriptures that shows us, as I mentioned earlier, the dysfunction, that shows us the insecurities, that shows us even, for example, That the father of our faith, one of the most recognizable names in all the scripture, Abraham. He was one who had a propensity to lying when he got in a difficult situation. I said this recently to an audience and I I could tell that was highly offensive. Uh, in, In many ways, Abram, the man who was the father of our faith, was a pathological liar. So back to Peter here, he is given this name by his parents. Maybe this name was given to him out of love, but I think as well that it might have embedded something deep in his psyche about his own consistencies, especially during the years of spiritual formation and following Jesus when he's constantly falling short. When he's telling Jesus, I will go with you, I will be with you to the very end or he is attempting to try to dissuade Jesus in fulfilling his particular mission when he goes to the cross. You know the passages when Jesus begins to talk about going to the cross. Now, you do realize, I'm not going to assume anything, but you do realize that Peter is considered to be this tri- a part of this triad, this, uh, the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Remember And if you've read any of the Gospels, you know that there are several accounts when Jesus takes them into unique experiences and he leaves the others out. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? I used to think for a long time that he kept Peter, James, and John close to him because they seemed to be at the head of the class, that he saw great promise in them. So, he decided that he would keep them close to. I have come since, I have since come to believe that the reason why he kept these three guys so close to them, him, is because he knew their tendency to always get in trouble. He's a part of the inner three. I, I, I want to repeat, even at the point of being redundant, uh, that I, too, have been guilty of making so many promises in moments of optimism, uh, promissory notes that I made with my mouth that I didn't have adequate funds to back up. Yeah. I know that what that is like. I've been guilty of that on more times than I care to remember. And many times the results has been extremely damaging to my reputation and to my character. Actually, what it did was it revealed my shadow self, not my real self, what I wanted people to believe about me. It revealed also how I had unwittingly become addicted to the approval and acceptance of significant people who orbited in my life rather than looking completely at his acceptance. This is, this is something that all of us deal with. We want affirmation. We, we, we really want to be accepted. And so, again, we make those promises that we just simply cannot keep. This man who opposed, uh, is, again, a, a paradox of uh, almost beyond description, He's probably the most illiterate one of the bunch. Yeah. Which is compelling because if you remember in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16, Jesus asked a very probing question. He asked them, He said, Who are people saying that I am? And he got varied responses. And after he gets these varied responses from his students, from his disciples, Peter blurts out, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I think that not only were his comrades, his colleagues shocked, but I think Peter himself was shocked that he knew that. (laughs) You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Because only verses later, he will be bipolar again. He is so certain. See, I wished I had time to talk to you about this sin of certainty that needs to be dealt with more than ever before, at least in my opinion, in the broader church culture. We, have we we as people in ministry, have labored under this notion that it's our responsibility whenever people come to hear us speak from the scriptures that they leave with more certainty than they did when they arrived. The truth is that the opposite of that is the case. Eugene Peterson, the man that's responsible for giving us the Message Bible, prolific author, wrote many other books, said a long time ago, he said, our sermons suffer from a lack of ambiguity. When I read that, I held on to it. Because we have this tendency, again, to think that people should have all this takeaway, so to speak, right? You've come here, and uh, you... You paid your entry fee a few minutes ago. And so it's my responsibility to make sure that everything is crystal clear. No, not at all. There's something to be said about living in ambiguity and mystery. Because living in ambiguity and mystery requires an increase in faith. I think I've said it here before, but it fits very well. At this, at this very moment, it's not the things that we don't know that give us trouble. It's the things that we're certain of that just aren't so. Remember I told you earlier, people, some people will never learn anything because they understand everything too soon. I really get nervous around people that seem to be so certain about so many things. Wow. Wow. That got a rousing response. At least you're thinking. I can feel the room heating up a little bit. So Jesus would say to him when he blurts out this in this epiphany the identity of Jesus is you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said you're blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you but my Father which is in heaven. It truly was an epiphany. And most of us I don't think we realize that we don't know what we know until we really need to know it. Walking with God, at least in my experience in all these years, has been coming to the resolution that I'm on a need-to-know basis. Which is tough for somebody... That is wired the way I am. Because I like controlling a situation because I have this need, this obsession with expected outcomes. So Jesus looks at him and he says something. That probably every one of you would remember, even if you've not read much of the gospel. He said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now, he was not just talking about Peter, was he? He was talking about something when he, and he uses the metaphor, and all of the language of Jesus was metaphorical in nature and mystical in nature. It had many different layers of meaning to it. Uh, again, that's, that's, that's why. I I think that healthy churches are churches that bring people in that are not echoing what everyone else is saying. Because if everybody's saying the same thing, it's evident that somebody's not thinking. It's true, all of us are smarter than any one of us. We need consistent challenge, don't we? We need the crisis of faith. Am I talking to anybody here this morning? He said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now I feel the tug of explaining that any fur- even further. The context in which he said it was in close proximity to a place where they believed physically, geographically, was the gates of hell. But even more than that, the gates of hell is not just a geographical location as much as it is a state of mind. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. You remember that whole exchange? I'll say this and rush on in case I get stoned for it, all right? is the gates of hell to me are not some, some cavernous place in the core of the earth as much as the gates of hell is this space between my ears. Because gates in Scripture is all, always a metaphor for perception. You let things in, you let things out. You know, if we could come to terms with that, then our lives again, as I mentioned earlier, would change dramatically because we would understand that problems come into our lives not always to be solved, but so that we can outgrow them. It causes us to understand that the way we see things are not the way they are. It's just the way we see them. It's not until we change the way we see things that the things we see will eventually begin to change. See, every problem you've ever had, you've always been present. And everywhere you go, you will be there. So again, to me, the gates of hell are not beneath us as much as they are right here sometimes. Does that relate to anybody? You know, years ago, I lost the fear of some physical torment chamber in the bowels of the earth. And I began to realize that I was making hell on earth. It's not until you have this revelation of the Christ and who he is. How about, I've got, I was telling you, I was going to give you a little bit of the backstory, but I'm trying to get my arms around way too much, which is typical for me. Uh, how many of you remember another exchange between Peter and Jesus when, when uh, uh, Peter looks at Jesus and he said, listen, I've been thinking about this. And he thought that he... Had really made an exponential uh, leap in his spiritual formation, and he looks at Jesus. He said, um, "How often should we forgive? You remember that? How often should we forgive?" Because he already had an answer, didn't he? Now, a lot of times when we're asking questions, we're really not wanting a real answer. We're wanting an answer echoed back to us that we expected. Oh, I guess that's just me. Um, but anyway, he says, how often should we forgive? Do you remember? Seven times seven. And Jesus upped the ante, didn't he? He said, no, seven times 70. Now, that does not mean that after 490 times of forgiving an individual, that you have reached the limits of grace. That's not what it means at all. That number 490 is too big for us to totally unpack. I mean, I have to go back to the book of Daniel, and I didn't mean that to sound like I was teasing you with it, but essentially what he is saying is that forgiveness is unlimited. And see, here's the problem when it comes to forgiveness for all of us, is that we have operated in an economy that is very much a mirror of Earth's economy, thinking that our relationship with God is a quid pro quo relationship. If I do this, he will forgive me. Correct? I mean, that's our system of justice. It's a quid pro quo. If you do this, then you're released from responsibility. But God's not a transactional God. He doesn't make deals. I hope it's encouraging to you for me to announce That God doesn't forgive you when you request it. God is not unforgiving until you ask him to forgive you. I'm going to step on out there a little further and tell you that God did not forgive us when Jesus died on the cross. You were forgiven before Jesus died on the cross. It just became a reality to you whenever he absorbed everything that was wrong with the human race and proved to you that he had forgiven you before it became a reality to you. That's a powerful truth as far as I'm concerned. I mean, when when do you think that God discovers how frail, And how much of a failure you think you are when you tell him? Do you think if you do something today that's egregious in nature, that in that instant, that's when he is so shocked? Oh, my God. That's why I have been beating this drum for years and years and years and will continue to. Tell people that it is impossible for you to disappoint God. In order for you to disappoint God, you'd have to do something that he didn't already know that you were capable of doing. Forgiveness is for your sake to understand and come to the realization in a higher level of consciousness to understand that he forgave you. Is a. Let's spell the word this way, not F-O-R, but F-O-R-E. It was already there before there was ever a need for it. You see, we're, tra- we're held hostage to this, to this erroneous idea that forgiveness really is a feeling that starts with a feeling. And the reason why we believe that is because our feelings basically follow our thoughts. You're forgiven whether you feel like it or not. Your feelings are mercurial in nature. They're unpredictable. They're unceasingly unreliable and unpredictable. You know, I know when I talk like this to a lot of people, they almost feel as if what I'm saying is total heresy, that it's scandalous. I'm of the opinion that if what you're hearing doesn't cause your mind to resist it and say that is scandalous, almost blasphemous in nature, I'm of the opinion that I'm not really teaching the gospel. If it's not too good to be true, maybe it's not the gospel. That's why Jesus is always accused of being a heretic. Or a blasphemer. I'm in good company. You no, know, Peter will struggle to wrap his mind around this, won't he? Jesus' response to offer unlimited forgiveness undoubtedly resonated in Peter's psyche from that time until the poignant moment that we didn't read about when he himself would be in desperate need of forgiveness in the wake of his repeated denial. It's sort of like Thomas, you know, these, this was unfortunately a real defining moment. Maybe I ought to pause there for a minute and ask you, what are some of the things that have happened that you are so embarrassed about and ashamed about that you have allowed to be defining moments in your life? It's like your life clock stopped there. And you remember Peter, He denies the Lord, not once, but three times. And Jesus had warned him. And this is what I love about this story. I mean, I know what I'm going to say next, and I'm still excited about it. I love this about this story. Is that Jesus looks at him. Remember in Matthew 26? He said to Peter, he said, you know, you're making all these grandiose promises. I'm embellishing a little bit, obviously. You're making all these grandiose promises that you'll never leave me. But I'm going to tell you that Satan has desired you to sift you a sweet. Now, that had to be a blow to his ego. But this is the part that I love. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. You see, the thing that is so powerful about that, it has never been about my faith in God, but it's been about his faith in me. Are you getting this at all? You know, see, I I grew up in a very performance-oriented brand of Christianity that it was always about my faith in God. And I always walked around you know, with this sense of self-loathing because I couldn't ever muster enough faith. Sound familiar to anybody? It's never been about your faith in God. It's been about God's faith in you. Jesus said, I have prayed that your faith would fail not. I mean, I hear the words of the Apostle Paul reverberating in my mind right now. Remember, this verse is probably one of the most powerful statements that axioms that paul ever gives us in galatians chapter 2 he said i'm crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but it's christ that lives in me and the life that i now live it's not even my own life it's the life of the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me and in understanding this i do not frustrate the grace of god Gosh, how many times have I told people around the world, stop trying to get your act together, because if you ever get your act together, it's still nothing but an act. (laughs) You think it was possible, though, that every time that Peter heard a rooster crowing, I mean, this is the first century alarm clock of an ancient world. I mean, I've traveled the third world countries all over this planet, and I know what it's like at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to hear a rooster crowing. Did Jesus tell him that the signal will be because each time he denied him, he heard the unmistakable crowing of a rooster? Did he tell him that to rub it in, to rub his face in it? Hey, listen. I want to tell you how God punishes you. If you don't take anything else away that I've said this morning, you mean to tell you how God punishes you? Maybe not the way you've always thought. God punishes you by loving you more. I, I, I know that, that that does not compute for most people. Because we have this misconception of a punitive, vindictive, quid pro quo relationship with God. Isn't it true that God made us in his image and that we have returned the favor? I'm so glad that God is not like me. I'm so glad that God is not like you. So when I feel your disapproval, if I feel that you're embarrassed by my behavior, then all that is is an indicator to me that I am looking in the wrong direction. He had to play over and over in his mind, reminding him of his infamous denial. Painfully aware of his own failure. The Scripture goes, says, I mean, there's so much pathos in this. He, he goes out and he doesn't just weep, he weeps bitterly. Have you ever wept like that? I mean, I've had a few moments in my life where I have wept so convulsively until I couldn't articulate a word. It was guttural in nature. Ever wept like that? And many times it was not just grieving over someone else, but grieving over myself and my own mistakes and failures. I made promises. Couldn't keep him. I wanted to. In his denial and his desertion, he is weeping convulsively. But no amount of weeping over his failure seemed to assuage that guilt. Again, I wonder why a rooster is crowing to cue his collapse. Maybe maybe the reason for it was to awaken Peter to what Jesus had told him before he ever did what he knew or what he thought was unforgivable, and that was denying Jesus. I do this in a lot of places, and uh, sometimes it's amusing. Other times it seems to be a little bit annoying. But I really think that probably more than anything else, that we're having this human experience so that at some point in time, we will eventually wake up. Rather than, rather than being a human that is in constant pursuit of spiritual experiences, we are spirit beings having a human experience. And I hope that tomorrow that I will be more awake then than I am today. Remember, just because your eyes are open right now does not mean that you're fully awake any more than you sitting in that chair guarantees that you are fully here. What do we need? Uh, you, You really, even though there's value in this, you don't need more prayer. You don't need more Bible study. Oh, my God, he said that? Yeah, I said that. Those things are supplemental. I did not minimize the value of them. What you really need is an awakening. That's what we all need in this awakening, which will make your time in prayer and your time in the scripture far more fruitful than it was before. Because the truth is exposure to more information never guarantees transformation. I mean, we live in the information age and it certainly has not created or produced proportionate transformation, has it? Hmm. I'm trying to find a place to land. You're encouraged by that comment, aren't you? This may seem a little bit random, uh, but it's always amused me I've always found it interesting that when people uh, are embarrassed by their own behavior, they experience an involuntary response that we call blushing. Now, my brothers and sisters of color, they can conceal it more. But somebody like me, and most of you in here, it's not so easy to conceal. Why is it that when we're embarrassed by ourselves and of ourselves that the blood, the capillaries release a flow of blood to the surface and we turn red? You ever wondered about that? Why do you turn red? It's like your heart starts pounding even harder and blood rushes to the surface and you can't hide that you're embarrassed or you're feeling a sense of shame. It's almost like the body involuntarily is trying to cover itself. You know, that's, I believe that's the reason why John said that love, or Peter would say, that love covers a multitude of sin. Do you think it's possible that we can actually get to the place if we have this kind of insight? to the grace of God, the magnitude, the scope, the unlimited, immeasurable scope of God's grace that we get to the place that we're immune to humiliation and embarrassment. I vote for that. I mean, whether you do or not, I, I've had I've had my share of uh, embarrassing moments. Let me k- share a couple of stories here for levity's sake because I'm running out of time. Um. Several years ago, and I will not divulge the identity of which one of our sons it was. I'll narrow it down. He's not in the room. And he just breathed a big sigh of relief. I came home from the office one day, and uh, my wife was standing in the kitchen, and uh, She didn't have to say anything. I knew something was really wrong. I could tell by the look on her face. And I guess we've been married long enough that I knew that there was not some tragedy, but it had to do with one of my sons because that's usually the way it goes. Let me show you what I found today that your son wrote. And she was right. So he's standing there. And she hands me this crumpled up piece of paper. And I open it up, and it had several curse words on it. Now, my wife is waiting for me to fulfill my responsibility as a father. But when I looked down at them, I was struggling not to keep from laughing because he'd misspelled every one of them. I don't think that she had read it closely enough to realize that he'd misspelled every one of the curse words. I looked at him and I said, why did you do this? And he was, you know, just sobbing. He said, because I knew you wouldn't let me say them. So I wrote them down. (laughs) I didn't punish him. Because in that moment, I realized that there'd been many times with the three sons that we had been given that I had corrected them, not because of what they had done, but because it was an embarrassment and a reflection on me as their father. I know you've never done that, but it's very therapeutic for me to say this. Yeah, I'm ashamed to admit to you there have been more than one time. And the one that's here this morning probably can recount this. He'll remind me at lunch where I corrected them, not because of what they had done, but because it was a reflection on me. And see, the reason why I'm referencing that is because we see God in the same way. That's the reason in my text, in closing. That's the reason why my text, it was not Peter who was pursuing Jesus, but it was Jesus in pursuit of him. I've always found it amusing that people talk about pursuing God. It's almost laughable as far as I'm concerned, as if he is somewhere far away. There is no distance in God. That's the greatest lie that religion has ever told, that there is distance in God. The problem is your awareness. The problem is the rooster hasn't crowed enough to wake you up to the reality that he is in constant pursuit of you. He is obsessed with you and me. Yes, I said that. He, God has an obsession, an absolute obsession. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the psalmist David would say. Oh, you should be encouraged by this, that he never ceases to think about you, not what you did wrong because he cannot relate to you on that basis because that is your false self and not your true self. That's why he forever is punishing you with more love. That's why he is still pursuing you. That's the reason why Jesus is asking Peter again and again, do you love me? Go ahead and stand. Go ahead and stand. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Oh. Like Peter, very few of us always surrender as quickly as we should. But when we do, we realize that God is not trying to do something to us, but he's trying to do it through us. Oh, religion has taught us to be fearful of the judgment of God. The truth is I want his judgment because his judgment is full of mercy. His judgment is not punitive in nature. It's always restorative. Always restorative. And I know I get reprimanded in a lot of places. That's just, that is just really sloppy grace. Well, I want to tell you. I got a license several years ago when I was writing this book, Brush of Grace. I was typing away and I backed off my computer and I thought to myself, I'm exaggerating. I'm getting too far off the reservation here. I'm exaggerating the grace of God. And in that moment, I heard him say to me, it's impossible for you to exaggerate my grace because you don't possess a vocabulary adequate enough to explain it. If you've got a failed marriage, if you've got a family that's failing, a failed business, whatever the fail it has so many different faces to it. I want you to just open your hands in front of you right now. nothing magical about. It. Just open your hands in front of you right now and know, if you let it go, if you let it go, he let it go a long time ago. So we do that now. We thank you. Father of mercy, Father of unfathomable, immeasurable forgiveness. We thank you for being released from these promissory notes that we made with our mouth that we didn't have the funds to back up. And we thank you that you release and cancel all debt. It's done because you said it is finished. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.